participants of the panel are in Z National. Uh, we have uh, Nalini Baruch and Andrew Clay with us. Now, this first up, RNZ data journalist Farah Hancock did an in-depth piece on RNZ today about the groups in the background that are spending big bucks uh, leading into the election. And the groups are politically uh, divergent across the board. There is a new one, for example, called Vote for Better. New to politics, Vote for Better have spent between 80,000 and 118,000 on ads about the election campaign on Facebook and Instagram alone in recent weeks. Haven't pushed for any particular party, but it's advertising focused on critiquing the current government performance. Many are well known. The Motor Trade Association told RNZ it anticipated spending up to $100,000 on ads. The Council of Trade Unions, CTU, 200k plus. Action Station estimated 2023 spend is around 30 to 50k. Some of the 31 groups registered. With us to discuss is Max Rashbrook, a Victoria University of Wellington senior research fellow. Kia ora, Max. Kia ora, Wallace. I, I, just interesting piece here, but let's go, let's put this in a wide political election context. Con, context. What is the largest example of third party funding in recent NZ history? Well, I mean, the, the most controversial one and the, the one that some people will remember was the Exclusive Brethren um, back in 2005 who were basically running a campaign um, on, the, you know, essentially on behalf of the National Party, which was sort of staring the Greens and, you know, which they'd discussed in private with um, National Party figures like Don Brash, the leader at the time, but which they were, you know, they, they were sort of keeping their involvement in a um, secret from the public, and then that was exposed as part of um, Nikki Hager's work on the book *The Hollow Men*, and that was that was hugely controversial, um, and that led to the the laws that govern third-party promoters um, to this day. Yeah. Now, to this, are you surprised by the amount of money swirling around? I think all up, Vera uh, put the number at around twelve million dollars. Well, look, I mean, there's a lot of money that's going into donations to political parties um, at the moment, and that's been well covered, you know, sort of huge sums going to National and ACT in particular, massive sort of imbalance there. What we're also seeing and obviously what RNZ's been reporting on is a very large increase in the number of people who are registering as third-party promoters. So, you know, not sort of in theory uh, groups directly linked to political parties, but who are campaigning um, during this election, trying to influence it in one direction or another. And there's been a big uptick um, in those compared to previous years. All right. We've got a panel with us, uh, as usual. Max, let's uh, bring them in. Nalini. Hi, Max. Um, this is interesting development, isn't it? Um, I guess at the end of the day, what we need to know is how do we how do we measure their success rate, and or how do they measure their success rate, and will they replace our credible source of information like news and current affairs in the future? Yes, I mean, I, I think the, the the question is, do we know where their money is coming from? You know, so do we know what interests um, they're promoting? Because um, whereas political parties have to disclose the names of every person who gives them over $5,000, these groups don't at all. Um, and so there could be all kinds of, um, you know, big money interests kind of having their point of view aired and pushed um, through the spending, and we wouldn't necessarily know about 
Ed, and I, for me, that's the real problem because we want transparency on those kinds of things, I think. Yeah, this this kind of thing troubles me a great deal, I have mm. to say, that the people that lurk in the shadows in these kinds of ways, and you see it, I suppose, in some large way in the United States is the obvious one that we hear about. It's not democratic. If someone can throw far more money supporting one way or another, one political affiliation, and, and therefore potentially sway an election, for me that's non-democratic. I don't think it can be transparent enough. They, should, they need to make sure they review the laws so everyone knows exactly what's going on. I'm particularly troubled by money that comes in from overseas. Uh, to, 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 to sway people politically one or the other. And, and this is, I find this troubling, I have to say. Uh, pretty strong words there, Max, from Andrew regarding non democratic. How would you respond to that? Yes, I, I think it's potentially a loophole in our laws. Um, you know, for the last little while, we've focused very much on creating greater transparency for political parties, and I think that's really useful. But, you know, these things are a bit like a, a balloon, as I said in the RNZ story. You know, if you squeeze down on, on one part, uh, then it's, sometimes things just pop out in another part of the system. And so potentially some money is shifting away from being donated to political parties and being donated to these third party promoters instead because they face less transparency. And that may be something that we have to look at changing. Is it something that we do have to get used to to an certain extent? I mean, look at the, look at the going through the a very interesting piece with on the RNZ side. But if you go through the pages and see uh, the pe- people named or the, the entities named, they're they're often across the board. Is there right, isn't it? I mean, this is in a sense uh, opposing what Andrew says. Perhaps democracy in action. Well, I mean, pe- people are certainly entitled to register as third party promoters and to campaign, you know, up to a point I think that's good. But, you know, I mean, why do we ask political parties to disclose the name of everyone who gives them over $5,000? It's because, you know, the public has a right to know where the money's coming from and so it can check to see if that money is leading to influence, you know, if people are using their money to sway politics in a particular direction. And so, you know, in these third-party promoters, some of whom you know, basically virtually refuse to talk to RNZ, so they're very much deliberately keeping themselves in the shadows, I think the public also has a right to know where their money is coming from. It's not that the campaigning's bad, but we just need right. transparency about who's funding it. What do you think about that, Nalini? Well, actually, just going slightly further than that, do you have any concerns, Max, in the future of any sort of negative role that AI might play and that we might fall into the trap of believing? Um, Yes, I mean, I I think that's potentially a slightly different issue, but I mean, we're sort of seeing, I mean, with the the conflict in the Middle East at the moment, that there's a huge amount of misinformation going around and some of that's very sophisticated fakes which are drawing on AI um, techniques. I mean, I think what you're pointing to in a sense is that there's always new problems um, facing democratic systems. Yeah. And just when you've fixed one of them, then suddenly a whole bunch of, of new ones spring up. But that's, that's how mm. things are. One of my favourite quotes is, democracy is the worst kind of government except for all the others. <laughs> <laughs> now, um, <laughs> I voted early and I tell you what, when I went to put my ticks on that form, I thought of what have I got in the last five, six, seven, eight years? What, are, what do I want? And that's what dictated wh- where the tick went. All right. Thank you for that. Mm. Now, just in terms of uh, just um, picking up Max on what uh, Andrew said, he, he, he looked at the US reference and that is often a common example, isn't it? But how do we compare to 
in terms of our political donor transparency to a couple of other nations, say, for example, I don't know, say Australia or say the US? Um, we, our system is probably towards the lightly regulated end of the spectrum. Um, there's quite a few countries where, for instance, there's a cap on how much you can give to a political party. Um, whereas in New Zealand, you can give any amount. You can give $500,000, like someone gave the National Party the other day. And, and most um, countries would require disclosure of people giving over $1,500, more or less, yeah. whereas we only require that over $5,000. So we have been tightening up in recent years, but um, we're still towards the laxer end of the spectrum. I'd say I think there's still plenty more we could do. And, you know, and this is just yet another loophole that we're talking about today. Very good. Thanks, Kia ora. Uh, thank you for your time today. Yeah, that's Max Rasbrook there uh, from <coughs> Victoria University. He's a, a senior research fellow there. Uh, the panel, RNZ National, we have on the programme Andrew Clay and Nalini Baruch. Thank you for um, such a response uh, regarding our story about uh, whether... Uh, someone asked, should my teenage daughter learn in 2023 a manual or an automatic if you've just joined us you can text us uh, on that uh, Andrew says I agree with that Max a great article today uh, how bad to be manipulated especially by foreign influence now that piece by Farah Hancock is on the RNZ website rnz.co.nz completely different topic now. Now, more schools are considering installing surveillance cameras in student bathrooms, according to the Privacy Commissioner. Schools want to reduce issues like bullying, like vaping, but could they be at risk of breaching privacy rights? Some schools, such as Rangiora High School, have already put these in place, but recommend a strong privacy process. There are risks. Would you feel comfortable with cameras in your kids' school bathrooms? Interesting subject this. We thought we'd get uh, Associate Professor Gahan Gunasukara on the programme. He's uh, familiar with these privacy issues. Gahan, kia ora. Good, uh, good afternoon, Wally. Yeah, great to have you on as always. Do you know more schools were considering surveillance? Well, it doesn't surprise me, and it, 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 it's a very, it's a highly fraught issue, and, and I'm somewhat wary about commenting on it. Uh, <laughs> but, but it's uh, hold on, <laughs> Cam- cameras in a school bathroom. That. What could possibly go wrong? Yeah, yeah, what could possibly, yeah. <laughs> well, it's nice but to have you on the program. Unfortunate, unfortunate in that. I mean, I don't have young children anymore, but uh, I'm fortunate that I have colleagues that do have young children, and 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 I've been talking to some of them. Uh, and it's good to get a sense of perspective on this. Um, but, but the first point to note is that the law is, is not black and white in, in this, as you, right. would, as you would probably guess. Uh, I mean, it, it comes down to what is fair and lawful, what is unfair and unlawful. Um, I mean, there are some things that are already unlawful in, in the sense that you can't, you know, have uh, hidden, uh, you know, it, it's, it's crime. It's against the Crimes Act to have uh, intimate filming in, in bathrooms and mm you know, what's so-called upskirt um, uh, sort of filming and so on. It, that's prohibited under the Crimes Act. But, but that's, that, that aside, um, I, I think, I mean, um, this is the difficulty here, Wallace, is that we're dealing with children. And um, yeah. I think, we, we, you know, and there's always, with privacy is concerned, there is always a balance between 
societal interests of public safety and uh, and privacy on the other hand but i think that balance probably has to be struck differently where children are concerned i think public safety must surely weigh more because the schools also have a responsibility to keep children safe and and so that I, i'm i'm going to get into trouble with my privacy friends by saying that but that's just my personal view not necessarily the view yes. of, of of you know the privacy foundation or anything like that but but i'm i'm just and i'm i happen to be actually supervising i've got i have some postgrad students who are doing research in this area uh, writing about children's privacy issues but it's evident that you know obviously there's a balancing that has to come in and sometimes public safety has to has to trump it but i think to play the devil's advocate i i think that the reason why privacy advocates like even including the the commissioner have come out so strongly against any kind of filming is because where do you draw the line how do you have safeguards uh, yeah once you say okay we can have safeguards and it's okay to have cameras and bathrooms then you go into a whole lot of difficult areas who's going to be looking at those cameras right. uh, you know and and what are you going to do with the footage and given that you know children are too young to be uh, criminally liable what, what it can't be used as evidence anyway. so what's mm. the point yeah and 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 so there's a whole lot of issues there and we know that some teachers have been found to be pedophiles. So, you know, if, if you, once you have the issue of teachers looking at the footage, uh, that, that raises... A, I think that's why. That's okay. why privacy advocates have well, come out so strongly against it. Gihan, we stay there. Let's get a response from both and come back to you. This is the issue of... This is on the RS Inside. Privacy Commissioner is urging schools to carefully consider the risk before installing CCTV cameras in bathrooms. Andrew, you well, first. Well, first of all, is there any evidence to, to suggest that having cameras everywhere or in bathrooms at least is going to stop bullying? Is there actually any evidence for that, or is it just a guess that that will stop bullying? Because I'd, I'd imagine that you'd you know you'd find a way around it if you're a bully if you know and go to a place where there wasn't a camera, um, right? And and, and and similar with things like vaping, you know, they'll, they'll find some spot where there's no camera there. So, you, you know, if it's to stop poor behavior and bad behavior i'd suggest that you can't have the cameras everywhere for privacy reasons so in that regard the kids will find a way to do the bad things if they're really hell-bent on doing the bad things so what's the point of them yeah okay stay there um gahan nalini yeah no i agree my i was pretty much going to ask the same question uh of gahan you know what are the rights of the minors versus what are the rights of the institution and how do we balance and how prevalent is the issue that we have to go we have to go to that extent of installing cameras in in toilets can we not for example in regards to vapes ask students to leave every belonging of theirs in a locker before entering um main school or you know classrooms and things like that are there other ways of achieving what we're trying to achieve here before starting to install cameras in toilets i mean Ugh. Okay, it, it, so it sounds like a hard no. I'd be interested to yeah. see what our uh, the panel across the country, panel listeners, uh, installing CCTV in bathrooms and schools. Is it a hard yes or a hard no or mixed? Text me 2101. Gahan, do you want to respond? Yeah, Nalini and Andrew make some very good points. Uh, I mean, I think you've got to differentiate, first of all, the, the specific mischiefs you're talking about. I mean, vaping is a, is a different uh, beast than and bullying and, and perhaps, you know, her, um, molestation or God knows what happens in these bathrooms. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and, you know, I've heard horror stories from parents, so we can't discount these things. Uh, and, and, you know, when it comes to children, there's a strong societal imperative to keep them safe. 
vaping is a, is a specific mischief, which, you know, has been argued it could be dealt with in so many different ways. Um, so, you know, having cameras just to stop people vaping, I, I agree that, that that's probably a bit of an overkill. Um, there are other ways to, to detect vapes. But, um, but, but you know, the, the, do schools have an obligation? I think the, uh, the answer is very clearly yes. I mean, there's legislation that requires, uh, that requires schools to, to um, you know, keep students safe. And that, that clearly often overrides whatever pr- uh, privacy rights the children have. Very insightful opinions, Gahan. I do appreciate it. It's one because a bit of response here from the listeners. For example, Dan says, bathroom surveillance, what about monitoring at the entrance? You can at least find who is coming mm. in mm. and going out when an incident occurred. So there's lots of solutions coming through. Yeah, well, teachers, you know, teachers walking around the playground is the old school way of, excuse the pun, old school way of doing it. Um, yeah. How successful yep, yep. that's been, I don't know. How that, how much more that was successful that would be than putting in cameras. I mean, right. is there, it, what is the evidence to say yeah. it's fifty percent more sure. more going to stop bullying? Is it ten percent, or is it not going to change it at all? I mean, is is there any, been any research on it? Yeah, that's the, that's your question, isn't it? Well, Gihan, thank you for that. Um, brilliant stuff. Appreciate it. That's Gihan Ginnisakara, uh, associate professor. Um, there are students developing. Bladder infections is this person's opinion because they are too afraid to go into the bathroom due to the large numbers of students gathering, vaping and intimidating, says Stephanie. Um, yeah. Time to redesign toilets, I think. School toilets. Yeah, and, but yeah. also, like, you, you know, this is the staff that need to jump on top of that. It's human beings mm. that need to hear about that, deal with it, all, all of mm. those things. They, it, it's not a secret society. It will come out. It will be found. Uh, it, yeah, and, and deal with it like it was always dealt with. All right, now, and having the resources. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yes, please. Uh, cameras and bathrooms. Uh, I have a 13-year-old uh, drawn into vaping in bathrooms of a private school, 18 now, and cannot stop. Bathrooms are known as the vape place in our school for bored kids. So uh, res- quite a response. CCTV in bathrooms, school bathrooms, yes or no, text me 2101. But this... What a response to this. So I was privy to a conversation the other day. My teenage daughter wants to learn to drive. What would be preferable in 2023, manual or automatic? With us now is Peter. Welcome, Peter. Hi, Wallace. How are you? Great to have you on, Peter. So Thank you. What, what did you teach your kids to, uh, to drive in? I do, uh, taught them to drive in manuals. Yes. <laughs> yes, you did. Uh, yeah, your old school. Then, um, well, yeah, that's true because it's actually I'm with you. not as easy to get a manual nowadays. But but that's what I did, um, and I think it made them better drivers. Yeah, um, interesting. So you say you have to think really hard about pulling out of intersections, car parks. Um, my wife, Tab, uh, I've got to say, she loved the manual because Peter, she thought you could just feel the engine. You could be at one with the engine. Well, do you know, I wrote down here some notes and I said that uh, I felt like the kids got a bit of feel of the car as a whole and it wasn't just a matter of moving your foot up and down and pointing and shooting. Exactly right. I, I, no, I want kids to learn in a manual for, also for another reason is I want them to go through the, the pain and the humiliation that I went through, bunny hopping, <laughs> bunny hopping up a road. So they think they're all that, they think they've all got it going on and wait till you jerk and bunny hop all over the place. My dad used to make me sit before I drove. And stall it. 
What's that? It's stolen. It's stolen. Exactly. It's stolen it at a crossing with everyone looking at you. you lo- that was character building. That is absolutely character building. My dad used to make me sit before we even drove in the car. Just, the car wasn't even on. I had to make the noises. So I, could, so I could recognize the, the tone of the engine ready to change gear. Now any clown can drive and it's not okay. There you go. That's my, that's hey, my point um, of view. Peter, thanks for, for joining us. All right. So, so all right. All right. Uh, so, Peter learned um, to taught his kids to drive in a manual. With us now is Jeff. Kia ora, Jeff. Yes, Hello. All right, Jeff. What do you think? Well, I think, yes, learn on a manual and drive an automatic if you can. But all these people who think about manual, that it's it's real driving, they're driving cars with power-assisted steering, power-assisted brakes, synchromesh on the gearbox. <laughs> Do they want to get rid of all of those things as well? It's, it's automatic. It's just Yay. progress. You see? It's it is, progress, it, both it, of you. It is progress, see? but anyone that can drive a manual can also drive an automatic. The reverse is not true. Absolutely. Now, I understand you've got a bit of experience in this. Am I right in saying that you were a driving instructor in England? That's right. I was for about eight years. There you go, Nalini. Well, look, I learned to drive at 30 in an automatic because that was what was our family car. Um, and now I drive a car, which is a, a triptonic system, so I can either drive manual or automatic. But uh, my car's being serviced today, and the loan car is an electric car. And I thought to myself, well, this is the future. What does it matter whether we drive, learn to drive in a manual because there aren't going to be many available soon. So, yeah. does it matter? Well, fair, I mean, I have to say, I don't, I'm not enjoying driving an, ele- and driving an electric. It's like a golf cart. Okay. I can't really comment on that because I've never driven a hybrid or a, um, an electric. I changed my car recently and the prices I could afford, all I could afford was a petrol car anyway. Um, so do you think, it, just, just to Andrew's point, uh, who, who, he said that, um, you know, you're a clown uh, <laughs> if you... Okay, uh, that sounds a bit harsh now you say it back to me, Wallace. You're just, you're, just, you're just a clown if you start driving in an automobile. Is there something to that, you know, the, 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 the feeling of bunny hopping, the feeling of stalling, that's real driving, Jeff. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, I would go back to the fact that an automatic is progress. Having said that, I mean, in the eight years that I drove, that I taught, um, there were only a handful of people who couldn't manage a manual and pass a test on a manual. How long um, ago was that, though? Um, well, I've been here about 10 years, so it wasn't that long ago. Mm. And um, in England, uh, there are far less small automatics on the road than there oh, are in this country. Okay. Mm. All right. So, you know, getting a cheap second-hand small car for a youngster... Um, it's often far easier to get manuals in England than it is in, in New Zealand to get automatics. Really, really interesting stuff, mm. Jeff. Thanks for your insights there. There you go. That Thank was you. a uh, former driving instructor. Uh, quite a lot here. Gordon says, boss to employee. Can you drive? Yes, I'm busy today. Can you take the van to the wholesaler and pick up the order, please? Sorry, I can't use a clutch. No party tonight. <laughs> <laughs> My first car was a column changed gear column, a Vauxhall Victor 101. Only had three forward gears. You, if you could drive that, you could drive anything. It was like a tank. Was with it only just, three just after gears. the horse and cart, was it? Not, not long after. <laughs> not long after. Do you reckon you could still drive it? Oh, yeah. 
because you don't forget actually. But it's what's yeah. amazing. I've driven. I drive an automatic now, right? But if I jump back into a manual. I, could, I wouldn't, wouldn't miss a beat. It's amazing how really? it's ingrained. I yeah. think, again, through the pain and suffering that I had learning, my dad yelling at me, you're going to kill us, boy, when I took off across the other side of the street because <laughs> I let the clutch out too fast and we're facing into the traffic the wrong, get out of the car, boy, you're going to kill us. No, dad, it's going to be okay. I'm just learning. True story. <laughs> Oh yeah, it was, honestly, it's character building. So, so many things now. Building. So You're many right. things now. Joanna, yeah. Built no resilience. Joanna says yeah. driving lessons with dad and manual ended in tears. Yes, mum had to take over. She would yes. grip the sides of the car of the seat in fear. I am pleased I can drive a manual though. I just got my first automatic car. And I'm 38. There you go. You're on the panel, RNZ National. It's Neil Diamond Week. That's very soon for now, though. Marama Tipoli uh, with the headline Marama, uh, manual or automatic? Uh, I, pr- I prefer a manual, but I have an automatic. I, I did learn on a manual, though, so 